chapter 4. We'll start our Bible reading at verse number 35 and then just finish out the chapter. So this last little section here of Mark chapter 4 and beginning our reading at verse number 35. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. When they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship, and there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. We'll end there at the end of Mark chapter 4. Let's seek the Lord in prayer together and ask his help as we consider these verses. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to a familiar portion of Scripture, one that is even has phrases that have been set to music that we're very familiar with in our singing here. Master, the tempest is raging. Peace, peace be still. Many of the phrases from this episode in the ministry of Christ ring in our ears with great familiarity. But we pray that you'll help us tonight to understand what you have communicated to us in recording this particular event in Scripture. And so we pray for the help of the Spirit. We pray that this would be of great benefit to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ had been preaching all day long. And as a man, the natural fatigue of speaking and dealing with people all day long had begun to weigh heavily upon Christ. During that day, Christ had been in Capernaum, on the Capernaum side of the Sea of Galilee. And we see in verse number 35 that Christ suggested that they get into a ship and sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, something that would have been approximately a seven-mile or so journey. If you look back in chapter 3 of the book of Mark, And you'll even see in verse number 36 here in chapter 4 that Christ had been dealing with a great multitude of individuals. And now he was ready to get away from this crowd and to seek a bit of rest. 
by going to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, that other side from Capernaum, Christ would have been able to get that rest that he desired. I say it was a journey of something about seven miles, a journey that every single one of these disciples had made countless times. You know that many of these disciples, specifically Peter, Andrew, James, and John, before the Lord had called them to be disciples, were fishers. They literally grew up on the Sea of Galilee. Their entire livelihood had been spent fishing the waters of this particular sea. And so they knew it very, very well. But we don't get far into this story before we find out that something had gone terribly wrong. They had just launched out, and not long afterwards, they faced a violent storm. The storms on the Sea of Galilee, we're told, are quite common. I've never been there. I've never seen it in person. I don't know if any of you have ever uh, traveled to Israel and, and been able to see some of these things. I've heard many people say that once you go and you actually see it in person in real life, it changes your entire perspective on the New Testament as you read it, because you get so much more of a, a mental picture and image of, of what's going on. But we're told that the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level, surrounded all the way by very high hills, and we're told that just as the physics of weather and nature would take place, the warm air from above the sea collides with the cool air that comes down from Mount Hermon that's there next to the Sea of Galilee, and it is meteorologically, I can't say that word, um, a perfect recipe for violent storms, and they're very, very common. Well, this particular storm was so bad that the disciples thought they were going to die. There's no doubt that every one of these disciples had been caught in storms on the Sea of Galilee. If, if we understand what people tell us about the frequency of these storms, it, it would be very difficult to imagine that these disciples had never been in such a thing. But here they were, found themselves in this particular storm, thinking that they were going to die. They thought that their boat was going to go under. And to their amazement, they turn around and they find that in the hinder part of the ship, Jesus is there asleep on a pillow. Something that you or I might find very difficult to imagine. Uh, some of us can't even sleep in a car, much less a tossing ship on a sea. But you know the story. You know that they go and they awaken Christ, and when Christ is awakened, he calms the sea. Now, one could read this particular passage and say that when Christ stood in the back of that ship and he said, peace, be still, we read in verse 39, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm, a liberal or a critic would come to this particular passage and say that it was simply a matter of coincidence that these storms that come up quickly and dissipate very quickly, as just a matter of coincidence, Christ happened to utter those words, peace be still, as the storm was actually already starting to die down anyway, and he said, peace be still, and 
you know, three, four, five minutes later, things were back to normal. I would submit that's not at all what happened. I would submit it was more along the lines of if our brother Daniel were to flip that light switch right there next to him, and these lights immediately go off, and he could flip that light switch and those lights immediately come back on, I submit to you that's what happened on the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus said, peace be still, it was instantaneous, calm. It was a miracle of the first order. It was not a coincidence of nature that Jesus just happened to utter the words at the right time that the disciples, by coincidence, thought that Jesus had done something. No, Jesus actually did something. He instantaneously caused a calm on that water as if he flipped a divine switch from heaven, which by miracle he did. I think we all can agree that this is an amazing story. But what in the world does it have to do with us? Well, if you trace the order of the miracles of Christ, this is perhaps the most astonishing one up to this point. He, in his ministry, has not yet raised a dead person to life again. I think that would take the cake as the most dramatic of miracles. The first one, he turned water into wine. And just as you remember Moses when he was before Pharaoh in Egypt, and Moses cast his stick down, his his staff down, and it turned to a serpent, and the Pharaoh called on his astrologers to come and to do the same, many in Pharaoh's court could say that Moses was involved in some sleight of hand, some trickery of some kind. And one could say that Jesus turning water into wine was just some trick of stage magic. Obviously, we know that's not the case. That's not what I'm arguing at all. You understand that. But that miracle, dramatic, of course it was. But now, a man who controls nature, to such a degree that these fishermen who were very, very aware of the nature of these storms, you look at the end of verse number 41, and they ask themselves this question, what manner of man is this? Can I translate this into Bowman English? Who in the world are we dealing with? Who is this man? What is this? That he's able to control even the wind and the waves. It was obvious that these disciples understood that this was not merely a coincidence of timing that caused those winds and those waves to cease, but it was a divine intervention by one who is the God of heaven, controlling even nature itself. So in this passage, Mark tells us about a literal storm in the life of Christ and his disciples. But I think it's easy for us to make the connection and the parallel to our personal lives. And if you will, the figurative storms of life that you and I would face day by day as we seek to walk with the Lord. Those various trials, those various tribulations that come upon us that we face, that I would submit to you, as we'll see in a moment, that even the Lord would bring. 
those things that we need help with. So I want to preach to you this evening on this subject of the storms of life. And I want you to see, first of all, from this passage, that the storms of life are inevitable. The storms of life are inevitable. Meaning, they're going to come. We're told by Christ himself, all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I'm not trying to be pessimistic, and you understand that's not the point. You all have been saved long enough, and you've been in church and under preaching long enough to know that the Bible is full of examples of the Lord's people, even in great faithfulness, being presented with great difficulty. So I'm not trying to be any kind of prophet of doom and gloom. I'm not at all trying to be discouraging to any of you. I'm simply putting before you what is the truth of God's word, that the storms of life, the trials and the difficulties of this life are something that are inevitable. Sometimes they are storms that come in the form of persecution from the enemy. Sometimes they are storms that come to us in the form of a particular trial that would be a test for us. You think of Abraham as the Lord tried him with Isaac to take his son Isaac and to to slay his son, and and you know God intervened in that. But that was a test of faith for Isaac, and sometimes the Lord brings tests in that way. But we face all sorts, whether it be bad news from a doctor, whether it be a mom and dad call with a report from a doctor's visit, whether it be a boss calling you into the office telling you that the company's being downsized and You're one of the ones that they have to let go, whether it's finding out your son or your daughter is having some serious problem, whether you face any kind of trial of loneliness, depression, suffering, whatever it may be, we face these things. The storms of life will inevitably come your way. But one of the reasons why it's so easy to say that the storms of life are inevitable, it's because we live in a world that is cursed by sin. We could argue, we could say that all of these difficulties, all of these trials that we face are ultimately the result of sin. Death, disease, destruction, all that is the result of sin. Death, disease, and Destruction was not God's original plan for his creation. It it is, because of sin, a perversion of God's original plan. Greed, lust, these are perversions of God's original plan. Poverty, distress, anxiety. That's not what God created in Genesis chapter 1. Yet it is what is the result of the fall. And sin has brought all these problems with it. There are many, there are are some, in in some church circles, would say that if you ever have any problem at all, it's because of your sin. I don't think the Bible supports that idea at all. Mainly because we look at Job, and we're told in Job chapter 1 exactly what's going on. And we understand from the text of Scripture that Job's 
trials, the storms in Job's life, were not because he was sinful, but in fact they were because he was pursuing righteousness. It was because he was following the Lord that these trials came. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example, the trial that they faced of the fiery furnace was not because of their sin, but it was because of a steadfastness that they had for the Lord. And come what may, they were not going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. They were going to be faithful to God, what God had commanded them to do. And they faced the trial of that fiery furnace. We come to the book of Acts, and we see the disciples arrested. We see Peter and John in Acts 4 arrested and put in prison. We see Paul beaten, scourged, 39 stripes, save one. The worst that a person could have short And these were not because of their sinfulness, but it was because of their pursuit of the things of God that they faced these troubles. But yet, on the other hand, we can look at someone like King David, who did face great storms because of his own personal sin. He sinned with Bathsheba. He committed adultery. And there were trials that came upon him because of that. We see the children of Israel in the wilderness. Many of the troubles that they had, the whole reason that they went 40 years in the wilderness was because of their sin at Kadesh Barnea. Their refusal to listen to the command of God and the promise of God that he was going to give you the land that's flowing with milk and honey. But the spies came back and ten of them gave an evil report. They said there's giants in the land, we can't win. Caleb and Joshua were seeking to be faithful. They said, no, God has promised to give us this land. We can believe the promise. We can go in. We can take the land. But they believed that evil report. And by their sin, they faced difficulty for many years. Storms of life are going to come. They are inevitable. They're not necessarily because of your sin. I think we, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to look at many of our problems and say it is because of our own sinfulness, our own foolishness that we get ourselves in so much trouble and we have so much difficulty. It's not always the case, but sometimes it is. In any trial, any storm is a time for us to pause and search our own hearts and see if there be any sin in us. Search, be you know, like David and say, Lord, But I want you to see secondly here that the storms don't take Jesus by surprise. Jesus is not surprised by this storm in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He is absolutely and sovereignly in control of every aspect of our lives. We don't believe in deism. A deist believes that God created, and then he just stepped back, And he watched it all unfold. The the classic illustration is that of a watchmaker who would put together all the little intricate detailed pieces of a watch and would wind the spring and then just let the watch do what it does. But that's not our God. I remember when I was in seminary, the first time I ever heard it put this way, I found it very striking, and it's a phrase I've always remembered, but Dr. Barrett in our seminary 
would say that there are no bleachers in heaven. God is not a spectator. He is not sitting with his arms folded, simply watching everything take place. But no, he is in sovereign control. And so, you see, if we go back to the story in Mark chapter 4, we know that Jesus knew that that storm was coming. This didn't take him by any surprise. Jesus could have just as easily suggested to his disciples that we send the multitude away, we camp here for the night, let the storm pass over, and then first thing in the morning we'll take our trip to the other side. But that's not what Jesus did. Even though Jesus knew the storm was coming. We see in Luke chapter 8, there's a a parallel passage to this. It indicates that Jesus went to sleep very shortly after his disciples set sail. Probably could still easily see land. And he was already fast asleep. I, I want to illustrate this another way. Turn over to Psalm 107. I think most of us are very familiar with this psalm. But Psalm 107. I want you to look at verse number 23. Psalm 107 gives four little episodes of events. And with that refrain, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. But I want to, look, I want to show you what it says here, starting in verse number 23 of Psalm 107. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters... These see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Look at verse 25. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. And then verse 28, look at the change. The Lord has brought this storm. They're beside themselves. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And he bringeth them out of their distress. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Is Psalm 107 not a striking resemblance to the very episode that we see recorded here in Mark chapter 4? In Psalm 107, we read of this hypothetical story of the Lord bringing up the stormy wind, the Lord causing that storm, causing the waves to do what they do. And the people come to themselves and they cry to the Lord. And the Lord hears their cry and the Lord calms that storm and makes the waves to be still. Whatever is going on in your life right now is not a surprise to the God of heaven. He knows all things. He's not in heaven pacing in circles, trying to figure out what in the world he's going to do to get you out of this mess. That's not what God is thinking. God is not confused by your circumstance. God is not caught off guard or surprised by anything that you are facing. Normally, a sailor can discern something of the weather. 
You've probably heard the phrase, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in morning, sailors take warning, if you've ever heard that. Well, on the Sea of Galilee, things were not quite so predictable. And even these seasoned fishermen were caught off guard by what was happening. But the storms do not take our Savior off guard. We can't plan for them, but yet they don't take Christ by surprise. Christ is not shocked when you learn that your boss has called you into his office to fire you. That's not a surprise to the God of heaven. God is not caught off guard when the phone rings with the test. I don't think the calls anymore. You just get it on Novant's MyChart or whatever. But God's not surprised when your phone dings and you have a new MyChart test result. That doesn't catch him off guard. He knows all these things. He has sovereignly ordained all these things. And so the storms of life are inevitable. And secondly, Jesus is not surprised by them. But I want you to see a third thing here, and that is cares about these things. This is where many people become cynical, and they would even blaspheme the Lord. And they would ask questions like, if Jesus really cared about me, how could he let this happen? If Jesus really loved me, how could this happen? Or Satan would get in, and Satan would insinuate, if Jesus really loved you, would he let this happen? If you're really saved, would this really happen to somebody that's saved? Right? And Satan would take advantage in every way that he could to discourage you and to beat you down. But many, even of the Lord's people, begin to question the Lord's power, begin to question the Lord's ability. And some have even, pardon the pun, shipwrecked their faith because of the storms of life that have got them down in such a way that they become so discouraged that they give up on the Lord. And I would submit the Lord knows that tendency. Look at verse 40. The Lord knows that tendency of heart. And so he addresses the the disciples directly this way. Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? It was part of what the disciples were struggling with. How is it that you are, or why are you so fearful? Now, you read that. That's a silly question. For my 40th birthday, my loving family took me deep sea fishing. And we were out off the coast of uh, Myrtle Beach, I guess it was, off the, you know, out in the water. And it was kind of choppy. And you get kind of a little bit wheezy. And there was no storm at all. I can imagine what it would be in a huge storm, thunder and lightning clapping all around you, water coming into the ship. It says that the ship was full of water. That's not good. There were other little ships with them. They were in the main ship. I I think that's reasonable for us to understand here from the text. They were in the big one. There were other little ships with them. I was scared to death. And in some sense, had every right to be scared to death. But the Lord addressed that. Why are you so fearful? How is it 
that you have no faith. Who is with them? Is, is, is the God of heaven going to go down with the ship? There's no way that ship could sink. It's impossible for that ship to sink. Christ had come to save his people from their sins. And our redemption was not to come through drowning. Our, our redemption was to come through the cross and the shedding of his blood. And so it was impossible for Christ to have died for the, the shipwreck to kill them all. It couldn't happen. But Jesus does care about the storms of this life. And he cares not so much about the storm, but he cares more about you in the midst of the storm. And you notice he asked, he asked this question after he settled things down. Verse 39, that's when he rebuked the winds. He said, peace be still, the wind ceased, there was a great calm. And he took the teaching moment to address his disciples because the storm was not so much the issue, but the heart of his disciples was the issue in the storm. You must realize that Christ has a purpose for every storm that comes your way. Sometimes to teach patience. Sometimes to strengthen faith. Sometimes to give you contentment. And sometimes just to bring you face to face with the fact that you're not in control, he is. He is the one who rules and reigns over all things. Think for a moment about Joseph, just by way of an illustration here. The Lord sent Joseph down to Egypt. Now, we read the story, and the story on its surface, the Lord sent Joseph down to Egypt. But when we understand the story, we know that that's what happened. The Lord sent Joseph to Egypt. Now, how he got there was rather difficult circumstances for Joseph. He was lied about by his brothers. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was cast into prison. But yet, through all of those circumstances, the Lord delivered him out, and eventually he became second in charge in Egypt. And we understand that what was happening was God was preserving his seed alive. The Redeemer was to come through the loins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we learn of Jacob, where he was and where he was living, that there was a famine in the land. And God sent Joseph down to Egypt ahead of time to preserve Jacob alive to preserve the promise of the Redeemer of God's elect. You think about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king in Babylon who, in his wickedness, defied the God of heaven with his idolatry. But yet the Lord smote him with this strange disease. For seven years he was outside of the royal palace. He lived out in a field. He thought he was a cow. And the Lord used that to humble Nebuchadnezzar to save Nebuchadnezzar. And if you go get a systematic theology book and you read a systematic theology book about the providence of God, you're going to find as the key verses of Scripture to defend the sovereignty of God, they come from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who says, 
no man can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? That's Nebuchadnezzar who said that. Nebuchadnezzar was converted. And the Lord used that great storm in Nebuchadnezzar's life to bring him to faith, to bring him to saving repentance, to show him that there's a God in heaven with whom you have to do and with whom you have to submit. And Nebuchadnezzar did so. You think of Christ himself. For 40 days he was in the wilderness. And at the end he was facing that great temptation by Satan himself. He was sincerely touched with the feeling of our infirmities and was in all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every way that a man can be tempted, Jesus was tempted that way. A trial, a difficulty, a storm of life but yet overcame through the power of the Word of God. He cares about your storms because he's gone through such things himself. He understands these things. You look at verse 38, what these disciples said. They insinuated that he doesn't care. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Do you not care that we're all going to die? Are you so flippant? Are you so out of touch with, with our needs that you don't realize what's going on here? Well, we understand that's a silly question. Right? Because, of course, the Lord cared about them. Of course, the Lord was going to intervene. Sometimes in our time of crisis, we doubt the Lord to such a degree that we impugn sin upon him. Is one of the commandments not to love your neighbor as yourself? And this insinuation implies that Jesus was not caring about his neighbor. But he did. He obviously did. But how many times have we kind of in our own mind insinuated the same thing? Our, our theology is, is sound enough that we don't maybe directly accuse God of sin. But we've asked these kinds of things. Lord, do you not care? I've got bills, dude. Do you not care? I've got this and that problem. Do you not care? I've got this other thing going on. Do you not care? And we ask these same kinds of questions. But yet the truth is the Lord does care. And the proof that he cares is that he, he actually did something about this storm. And so that leads me, lastly, to consider the fact that Jesus has power over your storm. So Jesus has power over your storm. He's able to deal with whatever it is that you face in this life. He's able to subdue the most violent of circumstances. And you see these words that we repeat so often, we sing often here, peace, be still. And as I said in some of my introductory comments, this was not a coincidence of timing, that the storm just happened to die down kind of right around the same time that he said that. Well, I think it was an instantaneous thing. I don't want to go too far here and be silly, but you've been in a car where someone slammed the brakes and your, your inertia 
jostles you in the car. I wonder if when Jesus said, peace be still, how many of the disciples fell down in the ship because they were so involved in trying to brace themselves in this storm that it stopped so fast that they couldn't catch themselves. I think it was that instantaneous, I really do. Jesus is able to deal with anything that you deal with. As the creator of the winds and the waves, Christ had absolute power over them. Or in the moments that we face. Now, I said earlier that Jesus cares about your storms, and now I'm saying that Jesus has power over your storms. And there's a big difference in those two things. Because there may be a lot of people in your life that care about your storms, but they can't help you. They can't do anything about it. I care greatly for Tom Booth. I hope this isn't cancer. I hope the doctor's surgery is very successful tomorrow. But I can't do anything about that. I can't help it at all. Like, zero. Nothing. I can't do anything for it. And as much as we may love our brother Tom, we can't intervene in this. We love our brother Greg. We can't do anything to help him. We, we are hopeless. Not hopeless. Helpless. We're helpless in our ability to intervene and to do anything to change the circumstances. Though we care greatly, but we have no power. Well, see, Christ is very different. Christ cares, but also has great power. In Mark 2, earlier here, we read about Peter's mother-in-law. And had Peter's mother-in-law knew that Peter was caught in this storm, she would have cared. She would have hoped that her son-in-law didn't perish. But there was nothing she could do to calm that storm. There was nothing she could do to go out and save her son in the midst of that difficulty. Not only cared, but also had power to intervene and power to do what needed to be done. And so the disciples, in their fear, mind you, and according to verse 40, in their unbelief, they still turned to the only one that was able to help them. It wasn't the other eight disciples turning to Peter, James, and John and saying, guys, you grew up on this sea. What do we do? They didn't cry to Peter, James, and John for help. Peter, James, and John, you've been in storms like this. How do, how do we save ourselves? No, they turned to Christ. The one who wasn't a fisherman, he was a carpenter. But yet he was the one. The only one there that was able to subdue the storm and was able to calm the waters. Now I can put this in some application context for us. We in this congregation enter into one another's burdens often. And we share our prayer requests with one another. And we cry with one another. We pray with one another. And we enter into these things. And we care. But, you know, we can't, we can't help one another. You know, in the real facts of the matter. 
And so we have to be mindful always that we go to the Lord, that we turn to Him. Because while we love one another and, and seek to bear one another's burdens and seek to enter into that ministry of intercession for one another in prayer, we know ultimately it's only Christ. It's only the Lord who is able to actually do anything for us. You remember those words of the hymn? We haven't sung this in quite a while, but a hymn by William Cowper. What various hindrances we meet is, I think, the title. But in that hymn it says, Have you no words? I think again. Words flow apace when you complain and fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent, your cheerful song would oftener be Hear what the Lord has done for me. I read that not insinuating in any way that we don't share with one another our burdens. But prayer requests are not complaining requests. We're not just complaining about the problems that we have. If that's all we were doing, then what use is that? But we cry to the Lord with these things. Because in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial, the Lord cares and the Lord has power to help us. We're told in Scripture to cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And not only cares, but is actually the only one that can do anything. I want to remind you of the Apostle Paul. Paul faced a great storm in his life. We don't know from Scripture exactly what it was. But he calls it in Scripture a thorn in the flesh. Many have assumed from various reasons, and now's not the time to get into all that, but for various reasons, some have assumed it was a very severe eyesight, that he, he was almost blind. There's some things he writes that would lead us that direction. We know that several times he was beaten, there was one time that he was literally left for dead. There are some commentators who uh, understand that passage in such a way that Paul was actually raised from the dead. He was stoned, the, the, the biblical words are, he was stoned to death. And then he revived and, and went away after that stoning. And you understand there's the passage Paul talks about... Um, a vision he had being in the third heaven and some of that difficulty of exactly how we're to understand what Paul means by that. And and some think Paul actually died and was raised to life again in his ministry. And some think that that thorn in the flesh was perhaps the result of some of those wounds from stonings and from having 39 stripes save one that were some of Paul's difficulty. You can imagine open wounds and sores, a man who traveled so much. But we don't know. But we do know that Paul three times prayed that this would be removed from him. And I don't take that that only literally three times he prayed. I understand that passage to be that for three seasons, he sought the Lord specifically for this and stopped praying And then again, another season sought the Lord for this. A third season of prayer 
not just he prayed like literally only three times, but he could have prayed hundreds of times, but it was seasons of prayer that he sought the Lord for this to be removed. And three times the Lord says, no, I'm not going to remove that from you. But Paul was satisfied with the Lord's response. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And when Paul understood that right, he was happy to continue serving the Lord despite the affliction. That storm in Paul's life was for a very specific purpose. To show to Paul that his strength was made perfect in weakness. That Paul, you can continue to serve me, not in your own strength, but in the strength that I will supply you, and you can continue to go forward. The storms that we face in life are for a great purpose. But I want to finish by focusing your attention there at the end of verse number 41 with that question that the disciples asked that I looked at early on in our introductory comments. What manner of man is this? This is where the disciples are left in the aftermath of all this. They're dumbfounded at what just happened. They've never seen anything like it. And so they ask this question, what manner of man is this? I would submit that that's a question that each of us need to put to ourselves this evening. When we deal with the different difficulties that we face, what manner of man is this? Is Jesus your lucky rabbit's foot that you run to only when you have a problem? Is your answer, what manner of man is this, that you know, Jesus is my ticket out of trouble? That's all Jesus is to me? My ticket out of trouble? Well, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And that's not the Jesus that's your Savior. What manner of man is this? The passage doesn't answer it. It's a rhetorical question. But it leaves that rhetorical question open-ended for us. For each of us to ask ourselves and the different troubles that we face. What manner of man is this? Who is it that we're really praying to when we ask the Lord to help us in our time of need? Even the wind and the sea obey him. There's nothing outside of his control. And so that takes all the limitations off of what we can pray for. It takes all the limitations off of what we can trust God for. What manner of man is this? If your answer to that question is a Jesus that's very small, well, then your prayers are going to be very small. If you say, what manner of man is this, and your Jesus is kind of medium-sized, then maybe you might be a little bit more bold. But if your answer to that question is a Savior that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, then there's nothing out of bounds for you to seek the Lord for. There's no storm too big for him to deal with. There's no problem you'll ever face that he can't subdue. Therefore, nothing is hopeless. For all things are possible to those who seek the Lord for his help. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father, as your servants, we face many things. And no doubt, each person in this room is mindful of something going on in their own heart, the heart of one that they love, one that they know, perhaps one they work with. We pray that you would take up these words as a great means of encouragement to our souls. And we pray that we would hear those words in our own spirit. Peace. Be still. But even if you don't calm the sea as you did for these disciples, we pray that like Paul, you would give us grace to know that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. That the power may be of you and not of us. We pray for this week that's before us. We pray that you'll take up the words from this morning. That you would make us diligent in our work that we have. That you would bless our labors. That you would provide for the needs of each family in this congregation, that you would bless us in every way that we can be blessed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.